Good morning. Our scripture reading today is from 2 Peter, chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. Now, if you don't have a Bible with you today, you can probably find a black one that's in the pew rack in front of you. Um, And by the way, if you don't have a Bible of your own, we greatly encourage you to take one home, please. It's our gift to you. If you're using one of those black Bibles, you'll find our passage on page 1018. 2 Peter 1, 1 through 11. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You can be seated as I pray for us. Father, this very passage speaks of how much we need your word for everything we're to become. So we ask that you would use your word now to feed your sheep. In Christ's name, amen. Well, today we start a five-week series in the book of 2 Peter, and I'm very excited to do that with you because I think there are some themes of 2 Peter that frequently escape our notice. This apostle of Christ, he knows that his time on earth is short, and that gets him thinking about how actually the time is short for all of us, because Jesus is in the process of drawing history to a close. So Peter celebrates the promise of Jesus' return, and he asks, how can we make the most of this time, of these days of God's purposeful patience? Peter looks and he sees and he warns the churches about this group of people who definitely are not living in light of the king's return. Opponents who seem to have doubted a a physical second coming of Jesus. And that belief led them to then live destructive lifestyles that ruined others as well. So Peter exhorts the letter's recipients and he exhorts us today to grow in the traits of those who will be able to welcome Christ's coming kingdom. 
And a helpful emphasis of the letter throughout is that we actually can grow because we already have everything we need. And before we get into the text, I want to present you with a fictional situation. So imagine with me, if you will, that your family is uh, living abroad in a country where a crisis has come. Now maybe it's riots or maybe it's um, some sort of terrorism against foreigners and you need to get out quick. The problem is your passports were stolen and you can't prove to the Canadian embassy or to the country that you're trying to get out of that you belong in Canada. You're really starting to despair and, and to feel stuck, but then who should show up at your front door but the Canadian ambassador? And he says, look, I know you've got the same citizenship as me, and I'm going to help you, but first, I want you to know that you already have everything you need to prove your Canadian identity. You can live in a way that non-Canadians just can't. So, I want you to grow in that lifestyle so that no one has any doubt and so that you can enter Canada just as you ought to. Please start eating more maple syrup. I want you to put maple syrup even in foods that it just, you never thought that maple syrup could go in them. And uh, next I want you and your kids to play some hockey, eh? And, uh, and play hockey video games, wear hockey jerseys, watch hockey on TV, dream about hockey. For your little kids, I want, I want them to have moose and polar bear stuffies. And you can sew some Canadian flag patches on your hiking backpacks. Please talk about how much you miss Tim Hortons and your favorite poutine place. Your wife, she should really start to decorate with a maple leaf design and, and maybe the words true north around the home. And I want you to be really, really, really nice to people on the street. Finally, I want your audio playlist to be a regular rotation of Celine Dion, Gordon Lightfoot, Neil Young, and Anne Murray. Or Avril Lavigne, if you prefer. Now, wait a minute, wait a minute, Ambassador, you say. Are, are you insinuating that I somehow need to earn my Canadian citizenship or, or prove something here? Do I need to build it back up from the ground up? No, 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 the ambassador clarifies. These are just things that Canadians do. So if you are one, just grow in that identity. Mr. Ambassador, you say, I've got good news for you. This is already the way my family lives, and I would love nothing more than to just naturally grow even more thoroughly Canadian. And the ambassador is all smiles too, and he says, I knew that would be the case. I'll see you in Canada. Now, every analogy is imperfect, and this one might be a bit far-fetched, but I hope you'll see some parallels to the text before us today, because we have here a communication from not the Canadian ambassador, but an ambassador of Jesus Christ. And he writes to tell us that because you have everything you need for entrance into Jesus' kingdom, make every effort to grow to be like Jesus. And we'll see that after greeting us with a blessing in verses 1 and 2, he's going to tell us about a divine endowment in verses 3 to 4, a divine vocation in verses 5 to 9, and a divine confirmation in verses 10 and 11. So a blessing, an endowment, a vocation, and a confirmation. He starts out, Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. 
We know that Peter was one of Jesus' three closest friends during Jesus' years of earthly ministry. Jesus had, had called him friend, and yet Peter here is happy to call Jesus his master, his God, his savior. Peter is a humble servant of Christ. And yet we need to think about that word servant or slave because in the ancient world, a slave could actually have great honor and authority. I mean, if you're Caesar's slave, then people get out of the way when you're walking by. And even as the word of the ambassador comes with great power to carry out the instructions of the leader back home, even so Peter, the apostle or sent one, has been given a message with power from the very throne of heaven. And the core of what this ambassador is meant to achieve through this communication is found in verse 2 when he says, May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. So this whole letter is about giving us more of God's unmerited favor. It's not generated by ourselves and it's, it's meant to increase our peace. This grace and this peace will be given to us through the knowledge of God. Not a mere academic knowledge, but a seasoned and intimate familiarity with God's glory. But who is Peter writing to? Well, it seems like he's got a broad audience in mind. If you look at chapter 3, verse 1, you can see that it's the same churches to which he wrote in 1 Peter. And if we look back at 1 Peter, we know that that's the Greek churches in Asia Minor. Now, it's interesting that in verse 1, Peter refers to himself as Simeon Peter, not the more common Simon Peter. Simeon was a more traditional um, Palestinian spelling. He, it was used in Jewish settings. So Peter here, he's signaling that he's just a, a good old-fashioned Hebrew boy. He's reminding them that he was there at the origins of the good news in Israel. He makes that known, but then he reaches out to his audience by showing that such a distinction no longer matters. Jew, Greek, Roman, barbarian... Whether you go by Simeon or Simon, Mariam or Mary, John or Juan, Peter says that these words are for Jesus people of all types. You don't have to be born into an elite crowd because if you share in Peter's faith, you are on equal standing with him. This standing is on the basis of the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's how Peter is referring to the gospel. It's similar to what Paul writes in Romans 3 when he says, uh, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. So the idea is that at the cross, that showed God's righteousness because the appropriate sacrifice was paid for those who had been welcomed into his presence. He has now proven right to accept his people on no merit of their own. And that's a great thing to read for us in verse 1 because Peter will go on in this letter to tell us a lot of things about what we should do and what we must do. But we'll have to remember that it all flows out of and is enabled by what God has already done for us in the gospel, the righteousness of God. Now after his introduction, Peter wants to tell us about an endowment that we have from God. An endowment. Endowment is a property or a source of wealth that's given by someone. And is this given to all humanity? No. By us, in verse 3, he means to those who have obtained the faith. Now, verses 3 and 4, they are really thick. You may have noticed that even as I was reading it. It's just clause after clause, and it's, it's a little bit hard to see what's going on. So I'll try to break them down so we can see what's happening there. God's power has given us everything we need for a godly life. 
it gives us what we need through the knowledge of God because you can't really live for someone who you don't don't accurately know. And God is described here as the one who has called us to his own glory and excellence. We don't really use excellence very much as an attribute or a way of describing someone these days, but if you have an ESV study Bible, you can read that the word excellence was used by Greek writers to describe the sum of all desirable qualities. That's what we're being called to. And when verse 3 speaks of God calling us, it's not really something that's optional. It's not like, you who, would you mind if it's not too much trouble to come over here and share in my glory and excellence? No way. When God calls, he says, you are mine, and I will do everything it takes to bring you to share in my glory and excellence. If it helps, think of Jesus calling Peter from the fishing boat 30 or more years earlier. Yes, Peter responded to the call, but Peter would also say that he was joyfully compelled to. The call came with authority. Verse 4 starts with, by which? What's he talking about there? Well, the which is plural in the Greek. He's referring to the glory and the excellence. To summarize all of this, because God is glorious, because God is excellent, because he's calling us to that glory and that excellence, he gave us his precious and very great promises. Did you know that the Bible in your hands is chock full of promises? Just completely, completely full of promises, the whole book. I'll read just a few so you get the flavor. Just relax and and let these promises wash over you. If you seek the Lord your God, you will find him. If you search after him with all your heart and with all your soul, he heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. The Lord lifts up the humble. He casts the wicked to the ground. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. He will swallow up the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people he will take away from the earth. I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Yet once more, in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations, and I will fill this house with glory, and in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. For you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, And you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. These are just a few promises, and all from the Old Testament, the Bible that Peter would have had in his hands. And if you think about the promises that also come with the New Testament writings, it's simply overwhelming. Promises that no one will snatch us out of his hand, that he will free us from this present evil age, that if we suffer with him, we will also inherit all things with him, that nothing, absolutely nothing, can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
The promises of Scripture are the avenue through which His power transforms us to be partakers of the divine nature. Partakers of the divine nature. That's, it's an amazing way in verse 4 to describe our salvation. And this is the only place in Scripture that that phrase is used. Um, it sounds pretty cool, but we need to be clear on what it does and doesn't mean. So we do not become wrapped up into some indistinguishable force that we could call God, as Buddhism might teach. We do not become gods of our own planets, as Mormonism would teach. We do not, from this one verse, view the pursuit of God as the pursuit of deification, as Eastern Orthodoxy might. Rather, what Peter is getting at is quite similar to what we read in Romans 8, that true Christians are certain to be conformed to the image of God the Son. We reflect his character, we will come to share in his glory, we will bear a family resemblance that carries in it no hint of moral corruption. So verse 4 says that through the, pre- the precious and very great promises, we have become partakers in the divine nature and we escape the corruption that's in the world because of sinful desire. Now are we meant to see those things, the, the uh, becoming a partaker and the escape from corruption, are we meant to see those as happening now or sometime in the future, like when we die or when the world ends? I think it's both. Certainly Second Peter talks a lot about Jesus' return and our need to live in, in light of what will happen then. There's no doubt that none of us will be free from corruption when that happens. Full salvation does wait for the end. Certainly the glory comes at the end. But what about the excellence, the virtue, the goodness of God that we'll share? We see in verses 5 to 7 how even now we can become more like God in the traits of his character and more and more free from the entanglements of wrongful desire, even now. But before we get to those verses, we need to ask how. How will we change? How will we become more like Christ? How will we leave behind the corruption that comes from sinful desire? And verse 4 says that it happens through the precious and very great promises. Now wait a minute. How can a promise change me? How can mere words change who I am? It's easy, actually. Have you ever seen a sports movie? There's this new coach or this manager or, or a sensei, right? And he, he comes in and he tells the hopeless riffraff or the collection of misfits, hey, I'm going to make a champion out of you. And they know enough about this guy's resume that they actually believe his promise. And from there, the trajectory of improvement happens, though, of course, with hiccups. But it starts right from day one. Now, it's a silly example, and our God, of course, is not just a sports coach. The very fabric of our being is sustained by him. He knows our our minds and our hearts better than we do. He's able to create life and to undo death. So it's very different, but... At the same time, he stands over each of us as we're pathetically choking on the fumes of rebellion or we're, we're just lying in the wreckage of our sinful desire. And he comes up and he stares at us. He looks us in the eye and he promises, I'm going to make you more like Jesus. And his promise is so certain that we can bank on it. And because we do believe it, our faith in the grace that's promised to us in the future, that grace in the future becomes the very tool by which God accomplishes our transformation right now. 
So that's the value of promises. And an endowment of promises like that that we find throughout our scriptures, it calls for a fitting response. Verse 5 begins to unpack that vocation, that job that we've been given in light of the promises. He says, For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith. For what reason? Because you've been given everything you need to become partakers in the divine nature and to escape the corruption that's in the world. If you've got the tools, why wouldn't you use them? Now, I'm a parent to a five-year-old, and I'm learning that there's a lot of discussion that happens about what one will be when one grows up. And some of the ideas are more realistic than others based on what my son has naturally. Sometimes what you have determines what you do. If you've got an athletic build, you've got uh, incredible stamina and quick reflexes, you might become a pro athlete or join the military. If you've got a photographic memory, you might become a lawyer or a spy or go to Las Vegas and count cards. If you have a discerning palate, you might become a wine or coffee taster or a chef. If you have a knack for problem solving and understanding systems, you might become a detective, a mechanic, an accountant. But what if you've got access to all things that pertain to life and godliness? Well, then you become a virtuous person, transformed into the image of the one true man, Jesus Christ. So for this reason, because you have everything you need, make every effort. And it goes on to list a chain of qualities that begins with faith and ends with love. That seems appropriate since faith, or trusting God, is the first gift of God for a Christian. It all starts with faith. And it's all meant to end in love. If we don't have love, Scripture tells us, our, the rest of our supposed piety is actually worthless. But beyond starting with faith and ending with love, there's not a clear order to these different qualities. Many scholars have tried to come up with some logic to it, but uh, no explanation is very convincing. Instead, I'd encourage you to think of it, it's not so much a ladder of qualities that you have to climb one after the other. It's more like complementary aspects of the Christian identity. Imagine that Peter, he sees this statue of a Christian, and he's walking around it and describing it from different angles. So just as for the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, you'll go crazy if you try to grow in just one at, at a time. It's, it's not possible. They're interdependent. They're complementary aspects of Christ-likeness. So supplement your faith with virtue. It's talking, as we would expect, about upright character, admirable sense of morality. Your faith should result in desiring what's good and saying no to what's bad. And supplement your virtue with knowledge. For some of you, knowledge is like a dirty word. You feel like, what is this? Do I have to have a doctorate in theology just to be a tier one Christian? And it's discouraging because you honestly don't like to read or, or you haven't had opportunities for lots of education. I want to reassure you that you don't need more classes or thick books in order to gain this sort of knowledge. Think of it as growing in the perception and appreciation of who God is. You're accumulating through, through years of walking with him and meditating on his word in the context of the church. You're accumulating a knowledge of who God is and what his plan entails. Now, others of you are quite comfortable with the presence of knowledge here. Uh, you're even excited. And to you, I'll just say, if this feels like the easiest quality to obtain, then keep in mind that it's only one of eight. 
and properly understood, it, it's interdependent upon the others. Supplement your knowledge with self-control. That's a word that's used particularly of restraining oneself in respect to speech, consumption of food, and sexual behavior. So it won't do if you have a knowledge of God, but then you go about the art of subtle gossip, or you habitually rely on food to make you feel better, or you keep slipping up and looking at sexual photos. What we know about God should free us from these sorts of roller coasters and give us self-control. Supplement your self-control with steadfastness. It's one thing to control yourself from the need to just do what feels good at all costs, but it's another thing to remain steadfast in pursuing the right course even when it feels quite bad. Steadfastness speaks to our patient endurance and bearing up in the face of difficulty. If we're to pick up our cross and follow Jesus, then this sort of supernatural fortitude is a must. Next, supplement your steadfastness with godliness. Godliness means that your life reveals an awesome respect accorded to God. It's something different than just being virtuous. Godliness implies a radical God-centeredness in how you do life. Have you ever been around someone like that? Someone who just seems to bring the awareness of God's presence with them into a room. I have, and it's, it's sobering, and it's refreshing. Because this person, they have no schemes, no guile. They only have a big view of God and a genuinely small and unimportant view of themselves. You feel like you both want to bow down before them and give them a hug at the same time. Godly people are full of life. Because God is full of life. He's a source of life. And these people speak of God's truth like it's a delicious fruit. And their perspective, it subtly convicts you of your sin in the most enjoyable of ways. Because they're not judging you. They're not measuring you or comparing with you. They've just got eyes wide with devotion to God. They're constantly pondering what good God might be up to. And that's contagious. And it makes you feel that Maybe I can change after all. So supplement your godliness with brotherly affection. This is a sense of genuine care for fellow Christians. And often this can be harder than loving the non-Christians in our lives because you think, well, at least my godless neighbor has an excuse. He doesn't know Jesus. Um, but in the end, with brotherly affection, we learn to actively care for that Christian brother or sister Trusting that they answer to their own master, and he is more than able to make them stand. And you pursue this brotherly affection without disdain because you remember that another Christian somewhere else is working just as hard to learn to welcome and forgive and care for you. Supplement your brotherly affection with love. When we think of love, we might think of soft feelings and warm hugs, but a more robust definition is a devotion to others that seeks their good, their true well-being at all costs, no matter how they may respond. And this is the stuff that can en enable you to stay truly engaged for the other's good in a messy friendship, a broken marriage, a flawed church, or a corrupt homeland. Because you love people in the pattern of Jesus, you are willing to suffer a thousand small deaths on their behalf, knowing that resurrection life will win the day. 
So we ought to grow in these qualities because of what's at stake. Verse 8 says, For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. I really like that holiness or Christ-likeness here is described in terms of being increasingly effective and fruitful. It's the way of human flourishing. It's the path of producing good things that reflect his goodness in this world. You know, perhaps in our church culture, we're too used to thinking of holiness merely as the lack of sin. Certainly that's true, but it's kind of a drab way of describing it. And here, holiness is described as the beautiful presence of many excellencies. That's what we're pursuing through the use of God's promises. We want to be people who live out rich and beautiful excellencies. Not merely on the surface by abstaining from things, but from the very core of who we are becoming. Now that's the positive motivation, but then verse 9 provides us with some negative motivation also. Whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. If you don't long to be more like Christ, then you can't see what's in front of you. And you can't see that this world of sinful desire that you're hanging on to, this this little piece of pleasure or power that you refuse to relinquish, that one day will be stripped away from you and you'll be left with nothing. So you can't see the future, but you also can't see the past because you're forgetting your supposed conversion symbolized through baptism, meaning that you are now cleansed from sin. A person doesn't get out of a bath or a shower and then go roll in the mud. No, you dry yourself off, you put on clean clothes, you comb your hair, and you go about life feeling fresh and new. So remember the past and open your eyes to the future. Don't lose the plot and be content to coast just the way you are. Don't forget that we were saved by God so that we actually can partake of supernatural life starting in degrees even now. The goal is not just to clear away some bad clutter from your life, but to be increasingly transformed into someone, someone who shares in glory and excellence. It can happen, and it must happen, if you claim that you belong to Christ. We have everything we need, so we have no excuse not to be changed. How much change should I see? More and more. Compared to that other person? No. Compared to your yesterday, and compared to the character of Christ. The true knowledge of Christ does not leave us basically the same as we've always been. I know that perhaps many of us are discouraged by where we're at. I trust that that's that's the work of the Holy Spirit uh, making you aware of blind spots. But you're not meant to stay there. So do you feel stuck? Remember, it's his power that fuels it all. And it's granted to us in his precious and very great promises. So if you're discouraged, go back to the promises and be encouraged. Maybe the question lingers in our minds. So, so this is the way I'm meant to respond to God's gift of the gospel and the knowledge of Christ and the, and the precious and very great promises. But what if I don't respond in that way? What if I don't feel like it and I want to be a lazy and careless Christian? I mean, Christ is a free gift, right? So is there any consequence if I just sort of, well, ignore verses 5 to 7? 
you know, just how like some people are more inclined to drive the wrong way the more maps you give them. Well, I, I just, uh, I'm inclined to do nothing the more moral commands I see. If that's you, first, I just want to say that I don't think that you really understand the gospel at all. Um, because you don't understand the goodness of our God. You don't understand the wonder of this promise that we can become partakers of the divine nature and escape the corruption that brings all human misery. If you understood these things, you would be excited by verses 5 to 7 because you see in them described a pathway to life at the fullest. And verses 10 and 11 tell us yet another gift for those who make that effort to use God's promises, a confirmation, a certainty about your belonging to God. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be provided, richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So practicing those qualities, faith, virtue, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, love, that not only helps me to be fruitful and effective as a Christian, but it's also a means of confirmation. It's a way for me to be sure that I am a Christian at all because these are the things that Christians increasingly do. It's in our DNA, just as maple syrup flows through a Canadian's veins. And Peter specifically says we will confirm our calling and election. Those are two big theological words that deserve some explanation. Calling is the Spirit's application of grace to our lives so that we receive forgiveness of sins and eternal life. Election means that you were chosen by God to inherit salvation. So these two words reflect what preceded our salvation on God's end, and they don't at all negate the need for every Christian to enter the faith by repentance and belief in the good news of Jesus Christ. The two are compatible. They're, they're two sides of the same coin. As Ephesians 2 says, we are saved by grace and through faith. So what this verse is really getting at is that, sure, you know you consider yourself a Christian, but there are a lot of fakers out there, so how do you know that God considers you a Christian? A big piece of that confirmation comes through observable changes in our lives that speak to God's ongoing work in our character and in our desires. And that's helpful, especially if, if you're one of those people who's prone to doubt your own salvation. Church history is marked by a good number of notable Christians who were plagued with a lack of assurance about their salvation. But God doesn't mean for us to live that way. And it's a great gift to be able to live transparently with other Christians in community and to ask them occasionally, hey, am I changing? What do you see? Am I growing in these traits that Peter describes? What good do you notice? What bad do you notice? Can you, can you pray with me about the blind spot you're describing? Can you thank God with me for the evidence of grace that you're describing? And when we live with that humble honesty in the church, then the passing of time will supply us with good evidence that something is happening in us that clearly must be of God's initiative. And that brings great joy and great peace. Again, it's not that doing these things makes you called or elect. It's that all who are called and elect will be growing in these aspects. So it's a great reason to get after becoming the person Christ has purchased you to be. Because the more others see him reflected in you, 
the more certainty you'll have from the Spirit that your faith is real. And that certainty, in turn, will then propel you into more and more holy effort in a life that's becoming more unshakably joyful and hopeful all the time. These verses today remind me that the Christian life is not static because God's plan is not static. This is all going somewhere. The eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is poised. It's, it's just ready to descend out of heaven. And a day is coming soon when the sky will be rolled back and a truer reality will emerge. Are you living in a way that welcomes that? Are you living as a citizen of that glorious realm? Is that your highest ambition even right now? God has given us everything we need. He has equipped us for growth in Christ-likeness that will confirm our identity as Jesus' people, and it will richly provide us with an entry into the coming incorruptible realm. Holiness comes through the use of God's precious and very great promises. So meditate on those promises, bank on those promises, live in a way that's illogical to the world around you and could make no sense unless the promise was true that there's a resurrection from the dead. In light of what you've been given in Christ at your conversion and your adoption, in light of who you're meant to be, to become in Christ, in glory, what does that mean for today? Who do you want to be today? Because real change only comes if we want it. People change because they want to change. So what's God doing in your desires right now? What do you want to change tomorrow or this week or this month or this year? I'd encourage you to take stock and then look to God's word. His precious and very great promises will give you the motivation and the power you need for genuine transformation. And these promises are your birthright, so you need to pick them up and use them you'll find that effectiveness and fruitfulness and assurance has been richly provided for you. And by God's grace, you will never fall. Let's pray to that end. Father, we welcome your power in our lives. We're so thankful that you've called us to your glory and excellence. Teach us to know your promises, to trust your promises, to use your promises as we grow in some hard ways. Even this afternoon, we ask that you'd give us rich conversations with other believers about how we want to go further in reflecting the character of Jesus. And mercifully wake up those who don't want to take this passage's challenge seriously and keep them, too, from falling in the end. We pray this for the sake of your name. Amen.